here is the listener email. This is um, a gentleman who wrote to me sort of recently. It's Stefan. I said I wasn't going to pester you with questions as I went along, but I have to ask this one before I forget it. It relates to your argument for morality, which even though I have a quibble with it, I loved it and remembered from reading it on the Lou Rockwell site. First, a very brief bit of background. Now, when people say a very brief bit of background, what does that usually mean? Long background, that's right. And they want to give you an excuse. And they want to give me an excuse, which we will see. I haven't read this in great detail, so we'll see. I am a little like you in that I've spent a lot of time trying to develop a fully rationalized theory of God, religion, spirituality. I have tried being an atheist, and I just can't pull it off. Intellectually, I mean... Sorry, intellectually, I mean. I was raised Catholic, which I'm beginning to suspect as I listen to your podcast that you were too. Do I sound guilty in my podcast? No? <laughs> Intellectually, I'm sorry, um, I dumped that at 13 and became an atheist. I mellowed out of that into agnosticism at 19 until a logical argument showed profound agnosticism to be illogical. I said, you can't know anything, my friend Curtis said, how do you know? After a number of good drug experiences, a bad one sent me scurrying to Protestant fundamentalism. After three years, I mellowed into a fuzzy, liberal, vague, Unitarian universalism and then spent a number of years folding some Buddhism into that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, after a number of good drug experiences, a bad one sent me scurrying to Protestant fundamentalism. I'm almost as surprised as you are, but this is what he says. Um, the universe seems too fantastic to just be here by chance, and for that and other reasons, I can't seem to get away from God from a God concept. I look forward to your religion podcast with bated breath. He says that now. But for me, any faith must be as thoroughly rational as possible. So thinking about all that, I came up with the idea that morality must apply to God if it applies to humans. If it's wrong for us to kill, it's wrong for God to kill too. Very much like one of your argument for morality tenets. If it's wrong for me to force someone at gunpoint to do whatever I want, it's wrong for the president to also. So when I read your rational morality tenets, I exulted. I hope he cleaned up. <laughs> background over, sorry to bore you with it, just as the fundamentalists claim to be in favor of absolute morality and decry liberals, theologically speaking, for being moral relativists, you seem to frame things in a way that implies to me that you are a moral absolutist, though with a rational basis instead of a revelational basis. Theological liberals are always posing situational or circumstantial questions to the fundies, and I'm going to do the same to you now. There may be some acts that are right for one person to perform while wrong for another because of differences in knowledge or perhaps even wisdom. Example, it is just plain wrong in all cases. Yes, I'll be absolute here as I am as much a pacifist as you for me to plunge a knife into anyone's chest. I don't agree with that. Oh, and he goes on to say, but to say a man known by his doctor to have severe heart disease collapses at a dinner table where his doctor is present and goes unconscious, it is not wrong for his doctor to rush him to the emergency room, plunge a scalpel into his chest, and perform some quick bypass surgery that he already knew needed to be done fairly soon. The doctor's greater knowledge and curative intent make him make the act right for him that would be wrong for me, even in identical, identical circumstances, i.e. I should not try to do bypass surgery on the man even with the best of curative intent because I simply don't have the skills. Now this is only one little contrived example, but it does prove that acts can be right for some people while being wrong for others. Might it be extendable to more complex examples and ultimately become the basis for justifying a state, perhaps like the one Plato recommended, ruled by wise philosophers? 
just for the record, when I read Plato's ideas, I am almost when I read Plato's ideas, I'm almost always appalled. I like the cave analogy though. I'm not going to try to justify the state, though I admit I'm on the fence there and waiting for you to convince me. But here is a more complex example where it seems that at least collective behavior is called for. Let me say, let me first say that you are the first libertarian I've seen give credence to environmental problems in my two or three years of reading articles. You mentioned pollution in one of the podcasts and gave a very reasonable description of how it could be handled, though my dealings with insurance companies, which I admit are not yet full-fledged DROs, make me feel about as good as the U.S. government usually makes me feel. That said, let's consider another environmental problem, and this highlights another area where I suspect you and I fundamentally disagree. You feel all human beings are free beings and should be treated as such. I question why this should be limited to humans. In my view, any being who can suffer should be treated as a free being as far as that is possible, even if it makes my life harder. One area that, as far as I can see, is becoming a real problem is the loss of biodiversity. I have... Uh, really looked into this as a layperson and read arguments from all sides, but the best I can come up with is that the cons combination of human population and human consumption is destroying so much habitat for other species that we are in danger of wiping out by the end of this century as many species as the famed asteroid collision near the Yucatan 65 million years ago did. One authority who seems to me very knowledgeable and wise in this area is Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson. Wilson's proposed solution to the problem is interestingly not the expected preaching for us to cut population and consumption, but for about 35 global species hotspots to be preserved at a cost he estimates to be 35 trillion US dollars. He has helped establish an organization, Conservation International, which tries to raise funds towards this end from individual and corporate donors. But Wilson thinks it will require governments to come up with this total amount needed. I am sure you would be able to frame the problem and its solution in a libertarian way, and I look forward to a podcast on it at some point. Maybe you've already done one. <laughs> With 520, it's usually a fair bet at this point. And Wilson is not arguing against libertarianism. He just sees the current order of things, people like to reproduce and consume, governments exist, and tries to frame a solution that makes those rea takes those realities into account. But what I'm saying, since I'm still on the libertarian fence, is that if we all act as individuals seeking what we perceive to be our own interests, very few of us might see the big picture and will end up wiping out a lot of beautiful species that took hundreds of millions of years to evolve species made up of individual beings who have their own interests and desire freedom but don't have the power to resist human development. Our descendants may well regret the loss of these species and the world may be a far less beautiful and more dangerous place even for humans. What seems to be needed as far as I can see is for us to act in some sort of concert with all of us setting aside some of our individual aspirations for wealth and prolific progeny, living lower on the hog, reproducing only after great forethought so that species can be preserved and we as a species can make it through the bottleneck reasonably well until our numbers are low enough that we can live less like kings and queens on a gorgeous earth teeming with many species. Can we all act in concert along these lines without someone wise to guide us? I suspect it will take some wisdom and some force, I reluctantly suppose. If we would all just wake up I often tell myself, but you know how hard it is for most people to wake up, and I'm sure they wish I would wake up to their concerns. Where is my reasoning going awry here? It's a very, very uh, interesting and uh, very good um, letter. It's obviously a good writer. Very interesting, smart, and good letter. And the question around the surgeon... Um, I have a feeling, and, and this is not something I've totally reasoned out, I, I have a feeling that one of the, the differences that occurs is 
and this is this is a, a dangerously subjective area unless we can sort of work something out. But one of the things that I think I would I take into account, all right, one sec, would be whether or not we would feel grateful afterwards to this sort of situation, right? So if somebody comes and steals your wallet or punches you in the face, you just don't feel grateful afterwards, thank you. You just don't. No, absolutely not. But if uh, somebody, um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> if you're drowning and somebody who can't swim hooks you with their fishing rod and reels you to land, you end up with a gash, but you're still going to thank that person afterwards. Yeah. Right. Now, there is a certain amount of subjectivity involved in that, and there's still some gray areas, but that, to me, would be a pretty important test. The issue with sort of morality and practice is not so much the principles of who does what, which is all well and good, and we should not have a state, but the principles of morality and practice, I think, would have something to do with would somebody bring charges against you? Like, if somebody comes and steals my wallet, I'm going to call up my DRO and say, hey, my wallet was stolen, you go get that guy. And so that's when it would go, you know, the, the sort of, the justice system would leap into action. But if it was the case that someone had, you know, my, my surgeon had, had cut open my chest when I was unconscious and had saved my life, or at least an independent panel had confirmed that, right? Right, and of course that people have stipulations for that. If I'm blind, what do I want someone to do? Right, right. So for me, the justice system, you should be free to pursue courses against someone, and you should be free not to pursue courses against them, and there is going to be a balance found in these gray areas by a free society, right? So um, the balance is always found in a free society between costs and benefits, and it changes over time. So you could have it where uh, a surgeon cuts open someone's, gives them a tracheotomy, Right? Obviously, cutting open someone's throat when they're healthy is an act of aggression, but if they're choking to death and the tracheotomy is the only thing that will save them, you know, then you go for the tracheotomy. And maybe this happens, and then what happens is a bunch of people pretend to be choking to death, and then surgeons cut them open, and then <laughs> they sue the surgeons for everything they've got, and then surgeons stop cutting people open, or whatever, right? I mean, th this stuff will be worked out by the free market, but everyone has the right. You know, certainly if I go up to a stranger on a beach and I drip hot wax onto their nipples, right, then I could be, you know, accused of a fairly kinky assault. But if, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know I'm involved in a very mild S&M relationship and that's something that gets us off or whatever, then, uh, you know going to pee on someone, pretty bad idea. If I'm into golden showers, maybe it's good, right? But the, the whole, the whole point... Yes, my love? The fact that you even know a term such as golden showers um, is a little concerning. I read it on a bathroom stall in a woman's washroom. Wait. I've never heard that. No, it's, uh, there's lots of euphemisms that make uh, horrible things sound more pleasant. Can I read these? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, we certainly do have the right to be free of the violence of a state, and we do have the right to be free of um, the initiation of the use of force, but 
we also have the right to either bring charges or not bring charges. And certainly if someone had saved my life with the tracheotomy or through rushing me into surgery when I was unconscious, I would thank that person and pay them enormous amounts of money because what would the use of my money be if I were dead? But of course, I would want that to be independently established by some sort of tribunal so that it wasn't just somebody out to practice their surgical skills by... that I was genuinely unconscious, and also it would be nice to know if I was really paranoid that the surgeon hadn't drugged me <laughs> to practice his surgical skills. I'd also like to know that the surgeon actually found a problem, right? right? So, I mean, these kinds, the, the universal morality is not specifically around every particular action, right? But, but it's the initiation of the use of force that is against the will of the individual, that is against what their preference is. Right? Because the initiation of the use of force if in a sadomasochistic relationship, uh, if, if, you know, dripping the wax on their nipples or whatever, uh, or, you know, piercings is the initiation of the use of force, right? Even an ear, I remember seeing my mom get her ear pierced. It was really painful. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was... Uh... Now, this wasn't the guy acting in self-defense, but it was acting with the consent, right? So the non-aggression principle, I think, is worthwhile expanding to include without consent. Now, where consent is impossible then you have to act with the best of your knowledge. If I'm going to r dive in and, and drag someone to shore uh, who's kicking and screaming, I may have to restrain them, they may get bruised, and I'm going to just assume that they're drowning. Now, if they're trying to drown themselves and I've just screwed up their whole suicide attempt, then yeah, they might get mad at me, they might sue me for inter... you know, but it doesn't seem very likely that any justice system would act against me. Because, you, you know, nobody has perfect knowledge. You have to act with the best of intention, right? I mean, the guy who's swallowed the shrimp sideways might be trying to kill himself because his blind date is going really badly, but you don't generally assume that. You assume that somebody in distress, if they can't communicate, wants your help. Right. And so it really is the right to freedom from the initiation of violence unless that's what you want, right? And if you're unconscious and somebody cuts open your chest or gives you a tracheotomy, that is the initiation of a kind of violence, but it's what you want. They would be worked out in a way that you just can't work them out with the government. You, you can't work these things out with the government at all. Now, the other question about biodiversity, uh, this is a, I mean, I always feel odd about doing this, but going up against a Harvard biologist, uh, the moment I hear a Harvard biologist and a $35 trillion plan, I immediately become suspicious that the science is bad. Now, this whole question of overpopulation, which was a huge issue in the 70s when I was a kid, zero population growth, I don't know if you remember those guys. Oh, God, yes, we all need, they, had, they were offering people money in Quebec to procreate. And, no, zero population growth, so they didn't want people to, pop, to procreate. Oh, really? The world is this distinctly not overpopulated. Um, the, uh, the entire, if you took the whole, the whole population of the planet, six billion people, and you gave them all a house the size of this, and... A, a, a sort of land slice the size of this, the entire world's population, even with roads and all that, would fit in Texas. I mean, the world is really not over, because so much of the world is not populated at all. The United States is only populated 2 or 3%. Right. So the world is really not overpopulated. Now, there is certainly an issue with biodiversity and so on, but uh, the real question as to why biodiversity is 
uh, is not a, is being destroyed is because of public ownership of lands and because government, for instance, the uh, the Amazon is being destroyed because governments um, keep granting rights uh, to uh, uh, to take the timber away uh, because there's a great deal of profit in temporary ownership, right? So, like, if you and I, like, when you and I are going to go, if I'm thinking of going on a business trip, and um, this would occur when I was, uh, even when I was running my own business and couldn't really expense a car because it was just coming in one pocket and out of the other, and I knew I needed to drive, like, to New York and back, I would rent a car because temporary ownership leads to overuse. And the reason that I would rent a car is because I didn't want to put, you know, 2,000 kilometers on my own car but I would rent a car and use it. Whereas if I just have to drive to work and back, I'm not gonna rent a car. So temporary ownership is only really valid when there's overuse, an overuse scenario, a high use scenario. So when I was, um, when you look at land, right? If you buy land, then you have to make it sustainable because whoever can make it the most sustainable is gonna be able to bid the most for that land. So if I can only bid land based on cutting down all the trees and selling them, I'm only going to be able to bid a certain amount for that land, but if I can bid for land knowing that I can replant and reharvest and it's going to be a sustainable resource for like hundreds and hundreds of years, then I can bid more for that land because I'm going to get repeated use out of it. Right. Now, this is also the case with uh, parks and, and people, people, that, um, uh, people who buy land for the natural beauty of it. Uh, there is actually a fairly little known history of Yellowstone National Park which was almost completely destroyed by government planners introducing species and destroying things and so on. Uh, the, because it's all temporary use, so people don't have any real desire to maintain its, uh, the biodiversity. The, uh, the issue, of course, that this guy is pointing out is that given that we have governments, there's no way we can get an anarcho-capitalist system put in place around the world quickly enough to save all these species. And that's obviously true. And that's a shame, but that shouldn't blind us as to what the real solution is. What about natural selection? I mean, are we, is it our job to protect all the species in the world? No, of course it's not anybody's job to protect any species at all. But there are lots of people who like the idea of biodiversity, and there is, what was it, there's some film with Sean Connery, Medicine Man, where they find a cure for cancer in a rare beetle or some insect or some animal in the, um, in the rainforest that's about to get you know, logged out of existence, so we're letting go. So it's, it basically, it's an argument from self-interest that we should limit our consumption and limit our reproduction, because otherwise, in this Malthusian idea, we're going to destroy the planet, and, and it's like a virus, right? We're like a, we're like a tumor or a cancer. Now, I think that that's all very interesting and very important stuff to talk about. I don't believe a single word that comes out of government scientists or government subsidized scientists, which is almost all the scientists that you see these days, I simply don't believe a word that they say. Because they're, you know, people follow incentives, the basic principle of, of life, and these people are heavily paid to come up with panic after panic that result in additional money that is going on, right? And so when it comes to biodiversity, I think it's just important that people don't have these weird illusions about, well, we'll just use a bit of government now and we'll get rid of it later. Like it's, it's such an extremity that let's use the government now to save biodiversity and then later we'll talk about getting rid of the government. Right, 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 right. Well, of course, what's, all that's going to happen is that the government's going to keep inventing crises to eliminate getting rid of the government as an idea.
Right, so if the, if the crisis, even if we accept that it's biodiversity now, that we need to use the government for and we'll get rid of it later, then the government's just going to invent global warming and then overpopulation. The government's just going to invent a series of crises that means we'll never get rid of the government. At some point, you have to draw the line in the sand and say... No, that's an excellent point. And to me, it's always been sort of like... Uh, this is sort of the, the approach that I take. Let me know if you think it makes any sense. So the way that uh, I try to work with this kind of idea, tell me if this is a metaphor that you think might work. The, the way it sort of seems to me is that there's a truck that's going down a, a, hu a, a very steep hill. And the brakes are cut. And at the bottom of the hill is a canyon or a gully or a brick wall, whatever is going to be a bad thing for the truck to hit. Mm -hmm. And if you stay in the truck, then for sure um, it's going to get, you're going to die. Mm. Right? So if you stay in the truck, you're going to die. And you're bouncing down, thing, you know, you're, you've got uh, your head's bleeding, you're, you're jarred all up, your kidneys are <laughs> bruised, you're, you know, because you're bouncing down this rocky or sort of stumpy kind of hill uh, towards certain death. And people sort of say to me, or they say, you know, well, we, we, there's just one more thing we need the state for. You know, as soon as we get this biodiversity thing or this global warming thing or as soon as poverty is eliminated or as soon as, you know, well, now it's the war on terror, I agree with you that we shouldn't have the state, but now that the Muslims are trying to kill us, we need the state for whatever, right? And so people are basically saying to me, we need to stay in the truck going down the hill a little longer. And why? Because, because now jumping out is a really bad idea. Well, yeah, and of course, given the nature of gravity and, and rolling the laws of objects of ro rolling rolling motion, um, there's never a better time than now. Yes, of course, there's going to be danger jumping out of the truck right now mm -hmm. but if we wait it's only going to get worse like there's never going to be a time given the logic of the accumulation of state power there's never going to be a time where it's a good time to get out because no. it's just going to get worse and of course the whole the re people say stay in the truck because it's dangerous to jump out right now but of course the only reason why it's more dangerous now is because we didn't jump out at the top of the hill well, we didn't jump out two minutes ago, right, when it would have been even easier right. and safer. And so people are, you know, maybe it's like being trapped on a balloon, you know, a hot air balloon, and you, you know, you're, you're sort of stuck on the outside and you've got to jump off. Well, of course, the longer you wait, the more likely it is to be end badly. Yes. If you, so for me, people saying, well, we need the state just for now, and then we'll get rid of it later, but there's this extreme danger. Well, of course, for me, the extreme danger is always created by the state. And even if we do accept that biodiversity or some environmental catastrophe or the war on terror or, you know, crazy Islamics, well, of course, these things have all come about because of the existence of the state. So saying, let's just use the state to get rid of these problems that the state has solved, when, of course, there is no evidence of the state solving these problems. We just heard on the radio the other day that the whole Kyoto talks have completely broken down into pure nonsense and no, no one's doing anything about it anyway. So even if people did think that the state could solve it, they have lots of empirical evidence, even if they didn't believe the state created it, that state's never going to solve it.
it's sort of like maybe you have this with your patients where they say, well, yes, my husband is, is beating me, but, you know, it's Christmas. So I can't leave him, you know, after Christmas maybe. Yeah, or, oh, I do get, well, you know, after, I'm so after, you know, and I keep telling people, I said, you know, it's like the depression, you know, I'll do these things when I'm not depressed. Yeah, but you're depressed because you're not doing these things. Right. It's a vicious circle, and it's only going to get worse the longer you postpone it. Yeah, the longer you don't do these things. So part of getting better is, you know, even if you don't feel like it, even if you're exhausted, do it. Yeah, there's just a certain amount of willpower that you have to put in. Right. And so I think people want to defer just making that decision to advocate and go for a stateless society because there's all these great dangers and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, if, if he's really concerned about biodiversity, which I don't think he is sort of psychologically, but if he was, then he would absolutely be saying, look, um, let's just say we go for a stateless society right now and we achieve it in 20 years. We're going to lose 50,000 species. Let's just say whatever number he's got, 10,000 species, I don't know what. But if we don't do it, there'll be no species at all. Because the, the getting out of the idea that the government will ever solve your problems is a very difficult thing to do. But once you accept that idea, then it really is like I can jump out of the truck now and get away with scrapes and bruises, or I can wait for a minute and then get a broken arm, or I can wait for two minutes and go up in a ball of flames and die. Right. I don't want to sound like overly dramatic, but that's the way it's always sort of meant to me. And people say, well... Uh, it's dangerous to jump out of the truck right now, so let's wait until later. And it's like that seems to me uh, entirely the wrong approach, right? That that it is the very failure to leap out of the truck that is increasing the danger all the time. So, and now I was I was sort of interested in his his whole thing about religion, right? That he's been unable to get rid of uh, to get rid of religion, and I would say that um, you know this is this may be a stretch, and let me know what you think, but. This idea of biodiversity, of a flourishing of various things, of an ecosystem, to me, knowledge is only really varied when you have reason. Right? Knowledge is not varied when you have faith, because you're just slamming down this conclusion. Um, what does varied mean? I would say that if you look at something like art, you only have really a variety in art when you don't have a centralization of censorship. Right? So if in the Soviet model of like ultimate dictatorial censorship, you don't get a real flourishing of art because it's just one thing. In the same way that with so a... Knowledge is only varied when... It only flourishes when you have, uh, when you have no uh, central censorship, right? Yes. And so for me, faith is the ultimate censorship, right? Because faith says, I'm just going to believe something because of X. And it's never your own religion. It's always someone else's. Like he's talking about, you know, Buddhism and what is Protestantism and so on. It's always somebody else's ideas or imagination that's being imposed upon you. And it's not your own thoughts, really. Uh, it's not your own, you're not working with first principles to reason your way into a variety, a wide variety of conclusions and constantly double checking them and so on. It is, um, you have this, you already have a conclusion that's irrational and you then are constantly at war with reason in a fundamental way and you, you almost can't think outside of the concept of faith because you've already accepted the concept of faith and it right. doesn't really give you any flexibility to you know it's like the people who say but I love him right sorry let me the people who say uh, about their like the wives who will say about their husbands you know you say well he's a bad guy 
and they say, but I love him. It's like, but if you love him, it's the conclusion. You can't think about the relationship in any kind of sensible way. The relationship is not alive if loving someone is just taken as an axiom, that they just, I do love them, and that's virtuous, and that's the right thing. Every discussion has to occur within that context. Then you can't really discuss much, can you? No, and I, what I was going to say, though, is he, he said he was atheist for six years, and then he sort of went back to it. He went to agnosticism, and then he went to uh, away from agnosticism towards right. a kind of spirituality. or Protestantism. To, uh, yes. Yes, and then after some. So, what does that mean? What does that do for your theory about you know? Because he did let go of it. Well, I don't know whether what his atheism meant though. Was it a form of nihilism? I would say because he graduated from atheism as a thirteen-year-old to nihilism, uh, to radical skepticism as a nineteen-year-old, that his atheism was more a rejection of the perceived value of religion rather than the acceptance of a rational value, or of rational values, or the value of reason. Uh, atheism, of course, is not a positive philosophy. It's just a negation of God. But um, so I will pause. So yeah. So for me, the, the 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 faith is like this guy has an illusion that the state is going to maintain diversity. Right? That the state that that a top-down hierarchy is going to maintain diversity which is the same illusion, and, and that the diversity can't be maintained without it, which is the same illusion that socialists have about a government promoting stability and economic growth within a society, which is the same fantasy that parents have that if they control their children, their children will be happier, uh, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this, and, and of course there is this belief that faith <coughs> is uh, something to do with enjoying the richness of the universe and the beauty of the universe and so on. And that's not true at all. Faith is just a conclusion that destroys your personality. Right? Faith is just an argument for morality about the existence of a higher being that totally conditions and undermines your capacity to think creatively, to have curiosity. It puts a big line in the sand saying, after here, you can't go anywhere. So I would say that faith as a concept destroys the diversity of thought. right? Because he's sort of going from glomming on from one sort of uh, from Catholicism to a kind of nihilism to an agnosticism to a Pentecostalism to a Buddhism to a environmentalism and so on and I get a sense of, of great pain and a great sense of absence of a particularly important aspect of this, the personality called the you know the reality processing ego or whatever where you sort of think for yourself rather than run for and I'm not saying this guy doesn't think for himself but just in terms of this letter that he's running from structure to structure Imagining that by believing other people's opinions or uh, by having faith in that which is not proven and is not rational or is anti-proof and anti-rational that he's going to end up with a diversity of thought and that's how his wonder of the universe is going to be preserved. But I would say that it's quite the opposite. right? It's, it's the self-destructive behavior that is sort of like somebody who feels unlovable sleeping around thinking that that's going to make them feel more loved. Right? It, it is the thanks. It's the pursuit of the solution that is the problem. And so I just I wonder the degree to which I wonder the I mean sort of fundamentally I wonder the degree to which people when they think about biodiversity and and the global warming and so on I wonder the degree to which it's not just an emotional projection. And and that's why I always look when people have these kinds of beliefs like we need the government because of X 
and this guy, you know, he, I need God to 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 sort of keep myself uh, structured. When of course it's God that's keeping him fragmented, right? And it's, people say, well, we need a state to keep us organized uh, and to keep to reduce conflict. And of course it's the state that creates and causes all this conflict. And we need the state to protect the environment when it's the state and the lack of private property that is causing the environment to get screwed up to begin with. This addiction to the solution, which is in fact the problem, just seems very common. So I just wonder what, what in the personality is is causing that. And I, I think for this guy, it's this addiction to faith that he thinks, that, so he's very interested in protecting diversity, and so he wants to turn to the state. And in the same way, I would say that he probably, within his own heart, wants to be uh, more alive and free to think based on his own conclusions, his own processing of reality, his own sensual evidence, his own rationality, his own ego strength. And in order to do that, he runs to religion, which destroys all of those things. So I just, you know, this, this idea that we need this solution to protect X when X is only a problem because of a prior preference for this solution. We need to stay in the truck going down the hill even though it's accelerating and bursting into flames and, you know, like there's spikes at the bottom and the tigers in the back are getting looser. We need to stay, because we've already stayed in the truck so long, we need to stay in just a little bit longer and then I bet you it'll coast to a stop and we can get out gracefully. And getting people out of that, you know, when you, when you see somebody who's a real victim of domestic violence, you have to say to them, you will die. Like, you will get killed if you stay here or you'll kill yourself, like it's like a drug addict or something, you have to say to them, it's life or death, like you will die if you continue down this path. There is no graceful exit from where, where we are. So I, I, that's what I would sort of, that's what I, I mean, this is a very non-syllogistic way of putting it, but I think that that is uh, uh, this idea that you protect, with, you protect what is most precious to you by that which is killing what is most precious to you, uh, seems to be very common in human nature. All right, let me read you another letter then, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Now, he actually starts this out. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Do you think he's trying to... Gives me, yeah, it's a deja vu of some kind. Good afternoon, everybody. It's death. I think I'm squeakier than that. <laughs> uh, he said, I have been busy, but I finally got a chance to go over and over. Sorry, to go over the over the podcast where you, Steph, went over my post about the nature of morality. This is one where I was talking about how uh, morality is not designed to make you happy, but to eliminate barriers to unhappiness. Oh, so to eliminate barriers to happiness, right? Like a doctor doesn't make you happy, he just makes you not sick, right? So, um, now in your podcast, you basically just criticized the idea of morality being about happiness. That's fine, because obviously if the fundamental principle that I give is wrong, then it isn't really necessary to go over the conclusions that follow. However, although much of what you said was true, I don't think your comments really disprove my argument. And I think that what you said was just beating around the bush. Shocking. Let me explain. In your podcast, you argued that to say that the purpose of morality is to increase happiness is flawed, and that rather the purpose of morality is to eliminate the barriers that stand which stop people from achieving happiness, right? So the non-aggression principle is like, don't use force against other people. That's not going to make them happy. Right. I, I mean, but if you're using force against them, they sure as hell aren't going to be happy. Right. Right. But if you stop, they have the possibility, right? 
Um, like nobody's rich in the Middle Ages because there's no free market. But when there's a free market, it doesn't mean that everyone gets rich. It just means if you want to, you're free to pursue it. Um, so in other words, you were arguing that the purpose of morality is to create individual freedom. It's one way of putting it. Um, but I would even say that there's such a thing as the purpose of moral. What's the purpose of the scientific method? It's to validate truth statements about reality. And I would say the purpose of morality of philosophy is to validate truth statements about reality. That's it's really all it's available. What you know? Sorry. I did a whole number of papers on it. But and and people they always want to use morality to get something. Like the purpose of the scientific method is to make everybody wealthy, and the purpose of capitalism is to make everybody rich. And the but none of these things are true. Right? All we're saying is don't don't shoot and hit people. I mean that's really all it comes down to. Uh, whether that makes people happy or wealthy, or, who knows? Who cares? Fundamentally, because you can't change other, you can't make other people happy. You can strap down and inject I don't know morphine or directly into their brain or something, but uh, you can't make people happy, right? Um, so the answer to this is obviously that freedom lets people find their own path to happiness, which just brings us back to the idea that the purpose of morality is to increase happiness. Again, not true. I just, I just don't believe morality is universally preferred behavior, which means that any proposition you put forward about what people should do should be reversible, up, down, backwards, should apply everywhere across. Does that increase happiness? I have no idea. The purpose of mathematics is to validate the proposition of numerical calculations. Does, does, does that mean it's going to make people happy? I don't, I don't know. Or frankly, care. Uh, you know, I just think for sure people are going to be unhappy if you're if you're, you know, pointing guns at their heads. But um, the same goes for your medical metaphor. No, a doctor doesn't directly make you happy, but by curing your disease or whatever, he is eliminating a barrier that stood in the way of your happiness. So ultimately, he is increasing your happiness. No. He's decreasing your unhappiness. Yeah. At least increasing the probability that you will be happy. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you get your tooth pulled because it's killing you, but the dentist doesn't make you happy, you're going to feel relief because you don't feel unhappy anymore, but that's not the same as happiness. There is little debate, however... Sorry, this little debate, however, is really just semantics, which I don't agree with, but maybe saying that the purpose of morality is to increase happiness is an oversimplification. But whether we say that morality should increase happiness, freedom, the freedom to pursue happiness, or whatever, the point still remains. We have a moral code because we want to achieve a certain effect. Again, I don't really believe that that's true. We don't have the scientific method because we want to achieve a certain effect. There is a certain effect that follows from capitalism and the scientific method, rationality and so on, which is truth and, you know, whatever, wealth follows often, but not for, you know, in general, but not for everyone. Some people are worse off under capitalism, right? I mean, uh, the aristocracy, uh, you know, for the time period, like let's just say you're some aristocracy and then you get thrown out because this uh, capitalism, right? You know, is George Bush going to do better under a free market society than he is where he is right now? Of course, under a free market society, he's going to be like a used car salesman and probably not a very good one. Certainly, he's going to be ruler of the known universe with all the nukes in the world at his command. So, I don't see how it matters the individual effects of. Uh, uh, of, of freedom or the non-aggression principle doesn't matter at all because that's uh, again it's saying that you should judge a proposition by its effects you know it's like 2 plus 2 is 5 so what if it makes people happy to believe that it doesn't matter whether it makes them happy or unhappy it's just true right and so um, the point of, uh, uh, so it, it, um, why morality which is a set of behavior rules must be relative or situational for those who haven't been following, okay, sorry. 
The phrase universally preferred behavior is thus very misleading. There is actually no such thing. There is, however, such a thing as universally preferred effect, or at least effect that is virtually universally preferred. This, I always find, uh, why people have such a challenge with this universally preferred behavior thing, I have no idea. I mean, other than the fact that it took me 23 years of thinking to come up with it, other than that minor hurdle, I can't imagine for the life of me why uh, people have such a challenge, such a problem since with this idea. It. Yeah, since I've identified it. Um, so he says here, it's quite wonderful, right? He says, um, there is no such thing as universally preferred behavior, right? So he is saying that it is not preferable in a universal sense because it's false. It is not preferable to believe in universally preferred behavior. I'm sorry, say that again. It is universally not preferable to believe in universally preferred behavior. Oh. So it is universally preferred to reject that there is universally preferred behavior. This is the paradox that people just seem to have a tough time with. That you can't, nobody can argue to me about anything to do with universally preferred behavior and expect me to not just take it as a silly opinion or uh, even a serious opinion like I like jazz or whatever. Mm -hmm. If somebody's trying to argue with me about a particular proposition and want me to change my mind, it's because they're appealing to something that is external to both of us, that it's universal, right? So whatever people say about universally preferred behavior requires, if they want me to change my mind, or want anyone to change their minds, requires the existence of universally preferred behavior. So, and I also count for the life of me where he says, there's no such thing as universally preferred behavior, but there is such a thing as a universally preferred effect. In other words, there's no such thing as a universally preferred cause, but there is such a thing as a universally preferred effect. But I have no idea how you get an effect without a cause. How do you get effect without behavior? Right? So if there's no such thing as universally preferred behavior, but there is such a thing as a universally preferred effect, where is that effect coming from? Is it magic? Is it, is it God? Is it a spirit? Is it, like, is it you know, whatever? It, does, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you can't have an effect without a cause. Behavior results in, the, in an effect. Human behavior results in an effect that, that is morally judgeable. And so I don't know how he's going to have a preferred effect or anything. Uh, one poster wrote that I was confusing personal preference with morality. Interestingly, however, morality is just an example of personal preference. Now, this is wonderful, right? Uh, what, what makes it special is that it is based on personal preferences that are virtually universal, such as the preference of life to death, happiness to suffering, and so on. Interestingly, he says, however, morality is just an example of personal preference. Right? So he's saying it's incorrect to view morality as anything other than personal preference, and that it is universally incorrect to view morality as anything other than personal preference. But since morality is defined as universally preferred behavior, you can't say that it is universally preferred to believe that universal behavior is merely personal. Right? You, you simply can't escape yeah. this. Uh, people keep trying to, right? So. Universality. Right. What I'm trying to say here, to sum up my initial point, is that to say that a system is moral is to say that it works, plain and simple, which of course is not the case at all, right? I mean, um, a system can't work, right? The scientific method, it doesn't work. It doesn't get up in the morning, take a shower, and go fix your road, right? It doesn't work. It does not work. It's a methodology for determining truth from falsehood relative to reality. Finally, let me just clarify that my argument does not disprove the morality of anarcho-capitalism per se. And of course, there is no such thing as the morality of anarcho-capitalism. That's like saying the scientific method of Einsteinian physics. Right? There is no scientific method of Einsteinian physics. There is the scientific method, which is relative to reality, not relative to somebody's ideas, my ideas, other right. people's ideas. Right? So, right. 
So there's no such thing as the morality of anarcho-capitalism. There is morality, which then results in an advocacy of anarcho-capitalism, blah, blah, blah. So he says that my argument does not disprove the morality of anarcho-capitalism per se, though I do believe it will logically lead you to that conclusion, but rather attempts to disprove the ideas outlined in the argument for morality argument. That article implies that one can come to the conclusion that anarcho-capitalism is the most moral system without even looking at what the effects of adopting that system would be. This kind of thinking is dangerous, and is dangerous, ironically, for similar reasons that religious thinking is dangerous, but I won't get into that at the moment. So he's saying that you can't possibly say that anarcho-capitalism is the most moral system without judging the effects of that system. Is it going to make people happier, right? Because his morality is all about this is utilitarianism. It's all about the increase of happiness, right? But your goal, you know, in therapy is, you know, somebody says, should I leave my drunken, beating, drug-smoking husband? And they say, can you guarantee me that I'm going to be richer and happier after I leave? Well, you say yes, because you're a private practitioner, but when you were at the hospital, you wouldn't say that. No, I can't no, say I'm yes. Because <laughs> you want them to come back, and, and so on and so on, right? But you don't say that your therapy is going to make you uh, healthier, wealthier, and wise. And you're not even going to say that in, in any measurable time frame it's going to make you happier, right? No. In fact, it's going to make them decidedly less happy for quite some time. Yes. So you can't judge therapy and say, well, uh, therapy to be efficacious has to, be, um, has to make everyone happy. Uh, of course, it's going to make some people very unhappy. Uh, and, you know, if they get hit by a bus before they've completed the whole progress of therapy, then you know, they, it was a bad idea, right? <laughs> it was definitely a very bad. It's like you don't quit to heroin if uh, you're going to be dead in three days, right? I mean, it's not a very good use of resources. So this idea that we're going to judge a system based on the effects, you know, it's like do we say, well, we're going to get rid of slavery, but first, before we get rid of slavery, we have to make sure that every single slave is going to be better off without slavery. Or we have to be sure that slavery is going to lead to increased happiness in society overall. First of all, who's going to choose that? It's going to be self-reported. Uh, who is going to, who's going to determine? There is, it's, again, it's the God perspective. How do we know? Like, we live on the street. How on earth do we know whether our neighbors are happy? We have no idea. Okay, we have a little bit of an idea, but not much. We're certainly not in any level of detail. But we don't know whether our neighbors were happy or not. We don't know. And even if we did, how on earth would we know what should be done to it? I mean, therapy and philosophy and so on. But I'm talking about the average person, right? We wouldn't know exactly what the cost balance, uh, sort of cost-benefit calculations would be to make them happy. If we say, well, we can't put a new system in place until we figure out whether it's going to make people happier or not, all it means is that that you can never put any system in place. The other thing that's amazing, too, is that if he says, well, we shouldn't put a system in place until we figure out whether it makes people happy or not, then he should be totally opposed to the existing system, to the government. Right. Because the government sure as hell wasn't put in place with the idea that it's going to make everyone happier. It just grew out of a bunch of warlords and a bunch of people who managed to get control of the army. Right? And so it's amazing to me that, that somebody who says, well, the system should maximize people's happiness, is then saying, well, we should be cautious about this new system, which is based on rational morality, because... We don't know the degree to which it's going to promote people's happiness or not. And, of course, they don't say, well, the existing system fails my test, too, so we should definitely get rid of that, right? So it, it really is, and, and these two letters, I think, are very related in that people always want an out. They always, always, always want an out, right? So this guy's like, yeah, I'm a libertarian, but what about biodiversity? 
right? And this guy's like, yeah, I like liber I like libertarianism. I'm interested in anarcho-capitalism, but will it make everyone happier? And so people are always trying to create this exit strategy, this exit scenario. How am I going to not have to just shut up and accept these ideas? And I speak from experience, right? I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking that the government could do X, Y, and Z. So, I, But they always want an out. They always want to create some wriggle room, some escape clause from reality, from a rational argument. Okay, I agree with you, but uh, the state isn't really violent because when I break the laws, I don't. I go speeding, I don't get shot. There's always some, some escape clause that people are trying to create. It's the same thing in therapy. People want a solution without going through the process first. Tell me more. Well, just essentially people define a problem and they want to immediately fix it. Uh, and sometimes the solution is not to fix it, but to feel the emotions and to, to work through what is creating the problem to begin with, rather than putting a Band-Aid solution on something. But tell me even more. That's it. <laughs> Come on, I have a... a, what a, a uh, now I feel bad. I have a 48-minute monologue, and you can do it in 20 seconds. <laughs> right. But at least that wasn't interrupting you. <laughs> right, it's, if, we, if, we jumped to, if we jumped to find conclusions, we often miss a lot of the important uh, underpinnings of, of, of the problem that are essential. Uh, the solution we may come up with in the end will be very, very different than the, the impulse we have to fix it right away. Can you think of a non-patient specific example? No. I'll My mind is otherwise cluttered with the food that is about to be ready. All right, so we'll stop and we'll talk about this another time? Yeah. Thanks so much, everybody. Um, glad to be filling up your brain. <laughs>